Thank you so much for joining me today for my first episode of 2020. I am kicking things off with a great celebration of an amazingly talented man known as Will Eisner. Now, if you're not familiar with Will Eisner, he made his mark in the late 30s, early 40s in comic books with legendary characters, perhaps the most popular, The Spirit, and he was able to turn that into a syndicated newspaper feature. And from there, had an amazing career working in many various areas, using his wonderful skills and talents to add a creative flair to everything that he did. And then, around the age of 60, made another monumental achievement and his second major mark on the comic book industry when he came out with what is considered to be one of the first graphic novels and a book to sort of define that term graphic novel for all that it could be, all that it might represent, all that was to follow afterwards. I'm talking about a contract with God and I'm lucky enough for this week that I was contacted by members of the Will Eisner Week group and that they introduced me to their chair an amazing gentleman named Danny Fingeroth, who was kind enough to sit down with me, have a great conversation about comics, Will Eisner, storytelling, Stan Lee, and so many other great topics that I'm not going to bother trying to list them all for you here. I'm simply going to allow you to enjoy a great conversation with Danny Fingeroth, hear all of the ways that Will Eisner affected both he and I, And if you have a story to share about Will, stay tuned to the end for all the ways that you can let us know. Now, join me for a great conversation with Danny Fingeroth, kicking off Will Eisner Week from March 1st through March 7th. Okay, it's on. Let's do it. Wonderful. And we're here on Storytelling with Seth. I'm sitting down with Danny Fingeroth. I'm excited to get the chance to participate for my first time in Will Eisner Week, and I'm lucky that I get to have a conversation with the chair himself, someone with a storied history in comics, and I'll allow him to make uh, further introductions and allusions to a very impressive biography. Danny, say hello. How are you today, my friend? Okay, Seth. Uh, it's great to be on. Um, your your listeners uh, may not know, but we just went through a uh, exciting uh tech adventure to, to get to rig this up and I'm you know I'm, I'm pleased that uh, if you're hearing this you'll know that the adventure was successful but it's uh, very nice of you to have me on to talk about uh, Will Eisner week and uh, my biography of some guy named Stan Lee um, but uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it but I'm gonna point out that if you're not aware of Danny by any other means except for this conversation I'm gonna let you know he's displaying an impressive amount of modesty the only reason we're actually able to get this recording done today is because my system failed, and he has an amazing uh, acute knowledge of how to create a backup system in about 10 minutes, somewhat MacGyverish, if you can recall that dated reference. And, uh, and that's the reason we're actually able to pull this off. So, Danny, thank you for all your efforts and for saving me in a bit of a technical crisis. Oh, well, uh, you know, as I said, well, <laughs> if, if you're hearing this, you'll know that everything uh, worked. You know, I, I've, I've done in, in my career, I've done a lot of interviewing 
in person and on convention panels and on telephones. And, <clears throat> you know, I um, have encountered many tech... There's always a technical issue. There's, it's never, you know, there's never two situations that are the same. And, and mm. you always think, you know, you've solved whatever uh, tech <laughs> issue uh, you've had before, and then suddenly something new comes up. So this, uh, you know, as I say, I, I, I've had to improvise often on uh, on um, convention or, or university uh, podiums with uh, you know with with you know half a dozen other people and uh, you know a thousand people in the audience and have to just sort of make believe that everything is fine and that nothing's going wrong and then uh, meanwhile I'm running in and out of rooms to try to get the tech crew of whatever venue it is to try to fix this thing that you know say it, it's almost always with a powerpoint if you're trying to show a powerpoint <laughs> slideshow no <coughs> You could bring half a dozen adapters, right? And and you could bring a laptop right. and other people in the audience. You know, I, I've never I've never seen it fail where you go somewhere, where you just think, oh well, this organization has a lot of presentations and and speakers, so I'm sure they can use my basic PowerPoint that's on my not too outdated Mac laptop, and it always is, you know, some, and it and it's often somebody in the audience who's some kind of uh, tech uh, hobbyist or something who, who goes, did you try plugging it in? You know, right? Something like that. You know, right? Thank you, sir. Thank yeah. you for that. Your insight. You are the only one who right. that possibility. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to start out really quick with the main sure. reason we were first introduced to each other, which is about Will Eisner. Um, and then I'd love to go into just the fact that as I, you know, sort of preface this conversation, you do have an amazing history in comics. But let's start with Will Eisner, and then let's let's move into all the other parts that I'm looking forward to talking about. For for starters, you are the chair. I am the chair. I am not the desk. I am not the I am not the side table. I am not the uh, the tabaret. I am the chair of Will Eisner Week. Yes. Um, How long have you been the chair of Will Eisner Week? Is this your first round? Have you held this position for a while? I'm just it's been about ten years. Yeah, it's been about ten years actually. Um, Will Eisner Week. <coughs> I guess I guess I should explain who Will Eisner is. You know, um, because there is this, you know, uh, forgive my ignorance. Is this a, a comics-oriented show in general, or is it a general pop culture show? Your, it's, your podcast. it's actually a story focus. Um, well, uh, my my biggest thing is about storytelling, and one of the things I love is that uh, I'll get a chance to introduce this later. But Will Eisner made an impression on me with one story that I constantly found referenced at points in my life, huh. and, and it was really impressive for me that even though I don't have the extensive reading of his collection, anytime I see his work, the first thing that comes to mind is that first story I read. It had. A very impressive impact on me. But, okay, I do want to hear um, about that. Yeah. For anyone who's listening, um, I get a chance to share the fact that I'm also a co-host for the DC Comics News podcast. Ah. I run a podcast as well called The Spinner Rack, which is where I pretend I'm at a uh, interdimensional spinner rack of all the comics <laughs> produced by DC Comics that week. And I choose five and I say, hey, from DC Comics, these are the five books I think you should be reading. Ah. So I okay. share snippets of that on here as well. So people are generally aware of that. But uh, I think even, you know, some longtime comic fans, if they've only been staying in the more current, you know, ideas of comics might not be aware of who Will Eisner uh, was, what he did, what he's responsible for. 
you know, he's done to make an impact, like the story I was mentioning. But well, maybe you can give us a really great introduction. Okay. Uh, Will Eisner is one of the maybe five or ten people without whom there would be no history of comics. He's that important at at numerous times in the history of comics, starting with in the uh, 30s and 40s and 50s. But he, he um, went to high school with Bob Kane who co and and uh, with Bill Finger I guess the two guys who co-created Batman they went to DeWitt Clinton High School right. in the Bronx New York as did, as did Stan Lee and a ton of people you can look you know from all sorts of different fields uh Will um was um early into the comics at all when comics were uh, even even before Action Comics number one in 1938, which introduced Superman, Will uh, was writing, drawing, and packaging uh, comic strips. And then he's best known for a character called the Spirit, who debuted in 1940 in the in the heart of the Golden Age of comics. The same 1940 was the two years after Superman, one year after Batman, the same year as Robin and the Joker and Catwoman. Um, a year after Submariner, Human Torch, uh, at, at uh, Timely Marvel. Uh, Will really invented a lot of the visual and uh, and written vocabulary of comics. The Spirit was very was a kind of a uh, noir adventure hero um, that was that was um, not uh, for sale on the newsstands. Except it, it was it was it was in newspapers the way. Um, you know that uh, I know a lot of people get their news digitally, but I'm, I would imagine most of your readers have seen <laughs> newspapers and the big, thick <laughs> Sunday newspapers like the New York Times, the L.A. Times, Chicago, uh, uh, what, what, the Chicago Tribune, I guess, um, or the Chicago Sun Times. But you know, big papers. So there's like always an advertising insert, and there used to be a TV listing. Well. The, in the in 1940, when comics were becoming so popular, especially superhero type action comics, um, there was a syndicate that uh, engaged Will to do a comic book insert. So people, everybody worked for Will. Jack Kirby, of course, who co-created Fantastic Four and X Men and Avengers, uh, worked in Will's shop. As did Al Jaffe of Mad Magazine fame, the Mad Foldin. And Jules Pfeiffer, the screenwriter and uh, graphic novelist and uh, political commentator. So all these people worked for Eisner. And the spirit was kind of, uh, Eisner was sort of the Orson Welles of comics. Things were very dramatic and, and, uh, and drawn from all sorts of uh, uh, exotic angles. And uh, there were all sorts of uh, strange characters. But, <coughs> but it, was, it was also for an adult uh, an adult, an all-ages audience, but uh, it, it, you know, comics of the era were more for kids, whereas the whole family read the newspapers. So the spirit was this uh, kind of two-fisted detective, but a lot of it was done tongue-in-cheek and satirically, and yet with a very heavy dose of film noir. So Eisner really invented a lot of the things we think of as comics, and he did the spirit for 12 years. Um, and uh, millions of people read it, um, and uh, and then and then he took time off to do comics um, 
for he did military instruction manuals that would teach soldiers to not blow themselves up and to not literally shoot themselves in the foot, and a lot of kind of humor stuff and uh, and uh, and corporate comics and kind of kept out of the spotlight until the early 70s when he was uh, introduced uh, to some of the underground cartoonists like Dennis Kitchen and Art Spiegelman. Um, and uh, and he kind of took from that, he realized, oh, there's an audience of people who are more, who grew up reading comics, they've outgrown superheroes, God forbid, and, uh, and, and, and they have a sophisticated understanding of visual narrative, which Eisner calls sequential art. He coined that term. And, um, and so he came out in um, 1978 with what's considered one of the first graphic novels. You know, the, we could debate all day about who invented the term graphic novel, what was the first. <laughs> but certainly it was the, a, a, a series, actually, of, sh of four short stories put together uh, under the title of A Contract with God. That was a groundbreaking thing, you know, so even if, you know, I, I think that, well, there's a book by uh, Paul Levitz uh, called Will Eisner, Champion of the Graphic Novel, and Eisner, not only did he put it on the map, but he really gave voice to a lot of other people, you know, you could say that he influenced Spiegelman and Pfeiffer himself, who just did a trilogy of graphic novels, but everything we think of as the modern graphic novel owes a, a, a debt to contract with God. And then, and then Eisner was, uh, I guess, in his 60s when he uh, put that out, just turned 60. And then he lived for another, uh, you know, more than 25 years, not only putting out pretty much a, a new graphic novel every year, but also, um, you know, uh, lending his name to the Eisner Awards that they give out at the San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, and then, you know, for a long time until he passed away, you would get an Eisner Award from Will Eisner. But he was an evangelist for comics and graphic novels and sequential art and loved the medium and was one of the first people back in the early 40s to even talk of comics as an art form as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a craft or a commercial form or uh, an entertainment. I mean, he believed in it as all that, too, but he really believed it had potential to be considered capital A art while still being entertaining. So he's really one of the key figures in the entire history of comics as, as a business and as, as, a, a, as a medium and as an art form. He was also one of the few people who early on, starting with the spirit, retained the rights to his work. You know, there's a lot of horror stories about yeah. people who created these super popular characters and then uh, sign them away the rights to them for for next to nothing, and you know ended up uh, in poverty and 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 not really benefiting. You know, so artists are, and writers, uh, creators in general, are smarter about that stuff these days. But it's still hard to do because the big companies want to have your work work for hire. Will was somebody who really understood um, how important it was to control the rights to your work, and he always did. And again, inspired. Um, several generations to uh, to try to do the same thing. Uh, so that so anyway, Will was born March sixth, nineteen seventeen. So every year um, from approximately March first to March seventh, but really we've had stuff in February and stuff. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. 
going into April, you know. But uh, Will Eisner week every year is is that week around his, his birthday, and it's and and there are. It started with one or two events about ten years ago, and um, Carl and Nancy Gropper, who uh, who uh, run the Will Eisner um, studio and also the Will and Ann Eisner Foundation. Um, so they're, they they um, they honor and 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 direct the Will's legacy, and they they came up with this idea for some, or maybe I think it was Charles Brownstein, actually the comic book legal defense fund, who came up with this idea for let's celebrate Will Eisner uh, with something called Will Eisner Week, and. Um, I, uh, so I uh, moderated, I don't know if it was the, you know, I put together and moderated the first event, which was in New York at uh, the old Jim Hanley's Universe store on 33rd Street, and I, I got, uh, I got Will's, I got Will's high school best friend, a guy named Kenneth the Ginniger, um, huh. who I think recently passed away, but he was, guy was in pretty great shape for somebody in his, in his 90s, uh, Ginniger, and Denny O'Neill, and, and an academic named Chris Couch, and I'm um, forgetting, but two, uh, a couple other people. And uh, I guess Carl and Nancy were there, and they asked me if I would want to help them, you know, grow and promote Will Eisner Week. So it's now here in, in the 2020, um, we have, um, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 170 events worldwide for Will Eisner Week. And when I say events, what I mean is it could be, say, uh, people such as yourself who were generous enough to give us some time uh, on, on their podcasts or radio shows or, or um, what, what we ask of people for Will Eisner Week, which you can find at the Will Eisner website, willeisner.com, um, is, is that they do something. It doesn't have to be about Will specifically. It can be about pretty much any aspect of comics that you can sort of tie in, even tangentially, to Will's life and career, and 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 so there's, you know, all over the world, uh, all over the country, there there are are as I say, we've now gotten it. It's kind of mind-boggling to uh, to uh, 170 events, which is, uh, you know, it's a tribute to Will. It's a tribute to how popular comics and graphic novels are becoming, and uh, so that's. That's kind of what Will Eisner Week is, and um, you know you can you can uh, check uh, at the willeisner.com site because there may very well be something going on in your town, you know, at a university or school or library or or comic shop. Um, and uh, you know, if there's not, maybe next, well, I mean, you know, really, there's nothing stopping anybody from doing something. Uh, for this year's Will Eisner Week, but if that's not enough notice, then certainly for next year we'd love to have people do it. And we, and then, if you send us the information, we have a spreadsheet and we promote it, you know, on our website. Um, but really, it's 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 uh, you know, so as I say, it can be about Will in particular or uh, about comics, graphic novels. So I myself am doing a couple of events in in New York. One at uh, Parsons, the New School. Uh, for Ben Catcher's uh, weekly uh, comic symposium, and uh, I'm doing something at a, 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 a for a class at FIT, and there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on. That was a very long answer. I apologize for that. I don't want you to apologize at all. If you can make all of your answers that long or longer, I'm going to have a great time, and so is anybody else who's just you know, jotting away with their pen or pencil at all of this information that you so graciously just disclosed. Um, 
what I love hearing is that you were part of one of the first or the first panel, and then because of that, you were then approached and offered the opportunity to make this a uh, annual occurrence for you and be part of Will Eisner Week every year. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's funny how things happen like that where, as I said, I think it was Charles Brownstein um, who – you know, just said, gee, wouldn't it be fun to celebrate, uh, you know, Will and graphic novels around his birthday with something called Will Eisner Week? And really, I mean, I guess it could have, it could have just stayed a local New York thing and then just been that one year. But you know, every, everybody involved saw it, you know, something that had potential, um, you know, I mean, uh, to spread the word about comics. I think for re- you know, I, I know that. Uh, Midtown Comics in New York <coughs> um, is um, doing a, a Will Eisner Week sale, and I think other retailers are doing that. And uh, you know, as I say, it's Will was so passionate about about comics and, and just the potential that that uh, what he called sequential art had. Yeah, it's it's kind of you know when when he uh, had his centennial uh, in three years ago in 2017, we kind of really put on a full court press and um you know part of my job part of my job what my whole career has been uh you know um uh, politely nagging and uh and annoying people to do stuff you know as an editor and and uh as a packager and uh, and so on so it, it uh and as a writer so um so through kind of gentle persuasion <laughs> You know, we got it. We got. You know, I mean, it was kind of appropriate for for Will Eisner's hundredth, what would have been his hundredth birthday. We had around a hundred events, and I thought, well, that's you know, we'll never. You know, that it must be because it's his hundredth birthday, and you know, people like round numbers, and uh, you know, I wonder what'll happen. And now it's three years later, and we have another, you know, 170, you know, events. You know that our brand is Will Eisner Week. It's it's uh, you know it's taken on sort of a life of its own, which doesn't surprise me too much because when I think about it, uh, a lot of the underground comics were coming out of the West Coast, I believe, wasn't it? The right. underground comic scene was, and so I would imagine that that cross coast national appeal would exist for Will Eisner. You know, given what he was able to later do. In in what some would consider his retirement years, you know, given if you were a nine to five guy in your sixties, suddenly putting out the graphic novel that encourages others to now again take another fresh look at comic books and to see how the medium can grow up, how it can present itself for those who have grown up with comics and are looking for a, a next evolution or a next chapter in sort of the growth and development of comics as an idea. I, it doesn't surprise me that. The moment they caught wind of Will Eisner week, there was this desire to go, hey, we over here love him too. <laughs> we would love to be a part of this. How can we, you know, lend our ears, our voices? Right. And, of course, in Europe and France, uh, you, know, Eisner, you know, graphic novels in general, but Will in particular, are very popular in Italy and South America, in France. Now that you bring Spain, that up, you know. um, how many of your events are international? You know, I wish I had you the answer to that, but I would say... That's okay. I'd say maybe yeah, maybe twenty five percent of them. I'm not sure, but uh, you know that that that's a great question, and and I should get back to you with that information. But quite a few, you know, he was 
he he really was internationally known and 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 uh, went to comics festivals and conventions all over the world. I mean, it's funny when you say, uh, you know, what what I sometimes say about comics, uh, you know, in a sort of bittersweet way, is that it's one of those fields where, you know, where nobody retires. You may die in your fifties from the sedentary lifestyle, you know, and, and inhaling <laughs> all all those ink and uh, and whiteout fumes and stuff um but not not it's not a feel where so will i mean i i i mean will uh never stopped i mean i think he um he was you know if not literally and figuratively even you know in the hospital as you know he was having some health issues uh near the end of his life was still drawing he still had you know a graphic novel he was working on um called the plot about uh you know an expose about the anti-semitic uh, forgery the um, protocols of the elders of zion that he was very dismayed had found renewed popularity um even though mm. it's a completely made-up thing so he was he did a graphic novel that uh did a lot of research for it so he was he was not a guy that the word you know uh, retirement just like you know just like stan lee just like um so many of you know steve ditko uh uh, you know, Robert Crumb is still producing. I mean, there's just people. I, I think when you're, uh, when when you have something to say and you have the skills to do it, uh, there's no such, you know, retire. You know, I, th I think Will had a very nice lifestyle. He he, um, you know, I think even again towards late in his life, he was playing tennis on an almost daily basis. But he was not, he was not, he was not, he was not retiring in any sense of the word. <laughs> No, certainly not. Um, and I love that story of, you know, the idea of just even in a hospital bed still, well, got work to do. Once you've done with your poking and prodding and testing and all, please give me my materials back and exactly. I'll get back to work. Yeah, that was, that was, that was Will. And that, that was, I mean, you know, that was Stan Lee told, you know, uh, you know, there's stories about Stan, you know, even though uh, literally days before he died, even though he, could hardly see or hear just sort of being in on story conferences and yeah i mean if that's you know stan stan used to say when people would say why don't you retire he would say well people retire to do what they want to do but i'm doing what i want to do so you know please don't make me stop <laughs> that's really great um i'm also just intrigued because uh you brought up an interesting thing which i've had a chance to touch base on and have a little bit of contact with this idea of who actually started the first graphic novel. I made contact with a uh, artist who is uh, local to me when I discovered one of his pieces of all things hanging up in the bathroom of a restaurant that I went to. And I, I, there was something about it that stuck with me, so I inquired. It turns out there's a gentleman, do you know the name Jack Cat? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Sorry, what's your knowledge of Jack? Oh, well, he um, did a... He did a lot of historical graphic novels, um, but he was active in what the fifties and sixties. I, I know there was, I know at one seminar I went to um, at the uh, Billy Ireland at the grand opening for the Billy Ireland uh, Comic and Cartoon Museum at the University of Ohio in Columbus, which is a great museum. If you ever, I mean, if if, if you ever happen to be in Columbus, 
go to it, but it's even something that even if you don't happen to go to Columbus, is worth planning a trip to Columbus. To, it's a great museum and archive. But um, I was speaking uh, at the um, on Will Eisner, oddly enough, uh, I think maybe in 2013, when they had the mm-hmm. grand opening, and uh, there was uh, a, uh, a comics uh, historian and scholar named Andrew Kunkka, who'd done a lot of research on correspondence between Eisner and Jack Katz. So, uh, Katz, I forgot his most famous thing, but it's a history... Do you, do you know the name oh, of well, it? Tell, tell, you well, tell his me. his most popular book is the uh, called The First Kingdom. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. And um, that was, uh, yeah, it's this long, um, eon-spanning narrative that, that follows the history of uh, a planet and a people, and it touches on huge cosmic ideas. Um, it, it goes from you know the ideas of spirits representing um, different values and other uh, concepts to mm. you know families that you know exist over thousands of years. There's destruction and rebuilding, and it seems to be very cyclical. That seemed to be one of huh. the biggest things I. I you know, found when uh, I got a chance to sit down with Jack for about three interviews and talk about, you know, the fact that he's 92 now and still, he's still alive. he was working on it. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Um, had some interesting stories to share, um, you know, struggles at, at time to, you know, really sort of get all the way in there for a, a longer, you know, discussion about one topic because, it, at 92, it's like, well, it all ties together, so let me tell you about all these different right. things that oh, might, sure. might not connect to that. But it was a really interesting conversation. He told me about Andrew Kunkka. I had a chance to touch base with him and uh, learn about his project, Muse, and about the uh, the article he wrote, which is a contract with God, the First Kingdom, and the graphic novel, and he, he bases it on the Will Eisner, Jack Katz letters. No, that's right. So I was really intrigued with the opportunity to, to talk with you, to have you bring that up, to know that this was something that I had a chance to have some exposure to, um, and you know, some framework uh, as, as we moved into the idea about the graphic novel and you know Jack's take on it, and uh, you know how he feels it measures up, and you know, in his belief, the uh, the article. Um, the paper written by Andrew Kunkka supports his claim that he was the first to it, and uh, the title he holds proudly. <laughs> yeah, no, Will never claimed he. Will never claimed he was the first. You know, it's one of those things where I think, um, especially you know, say the not you know mainstream uh, reporters or just as shorthand, you know, uh, somebody's introducing Will at a. You know, to, to speak at a synagogue or something, or 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 at a college class where, where it's not specifically about, uh, you know, it's not a crowd that that necessarily um, has a deep background in comics. To say that Will Eisner is the father of the graphic novel or the inventor of the graphic novel is one of those things that gets said. Although Will him, you know, mm-hmm. just as shorthand or or for convenience, but Will never Will never uh, claim that, uh, you know, what, uh, Will, you know, Will's anecdote about it, which um, he told a lot, was when he had uh, uh, been working on a contract with God. Um, he called up a publisher that he knew, and uh, he knew if he he knew if he said to the guy. I have a new long-form comic book that the guy probably wouldn't see him. 
So, uh, so according to Will, he was on the phone, and the guy said, "Hey, Will, what, uh, what, do, what do you got? You sound really excited about it." And Will said, "I got uh, a graphic novel." <laughs> you know. So, so I think Will, you know, ha- I think uh, yeah, probably in different accounts it comes out differently. I think he he claims that he coined the phrase, but doesn't rule out that somebody else might have used it years before as well. Uh, what year did Katz uh, say that he started using the term? Um, boy, I'd have to go back yeah. through and, and nail it down. Um, I believe it was in 74 he claims that he started sharing with Eisner his idea for the First Kingdom. Uh-huh. So that, you know, it, the idea was, hey, you know, in, in Jack's story, you know, he and Will were having a conversation, and it was one where he said, this is what I'm thinking of working on. And then it was around that time that he sort of, like, you know, references it during their correspondence. He says, yeah, um, I'm, it's like a, it's not just going to be a big, long comic book. It's going to be like a novel, like a graphic novel was the term that he, he right. uh, coined in one of their letters to each other. Cause I think- and so... Yeah, I, I, I think somebody. I think maybe was it somebody named Richard Kyle who was, who people credit with using the term, in the '60s, yeah. and then I think Byron Price used it for, uh, a line of uh, of kind of a paperback, uh, comic originals that he did in mm-hmm. the '70s. Uh, you know that, that Chandler by Steranko and Shlomo Raven by Tom Sutton. Um, and 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 I think maybe Byron himself wrote it. I've, you know, but you know, it's what like I said. I, it, it, and really, graphic novel is in a way as vague as comic book. I mean, both of those terms are sort of, you know, are are are, are you know, are, people know it. I mean, you know, we're, we're at the point now where it's become that. I guess the term has become so respectable that say. You know, you'll have children's art classes or something uh, where, where you know, somebody will call a two-page comic a graphic novel. Well, I don't know if that, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that was either Jack or Will's or anybody else's intention. But I guess, I, excuse me, I guess when comic book, you know, I mean, to this day, you know, I guess because I've been in this business, you know, my whole career and as, and was a, read them as a kid, my antenna. Are, are, are attuned to it, but you know, not a week goes by where you don't read somebody using the word comic book or comic booky as in a derogatory way. You know, that movie was so stupid; it was like a comic book. That uh, you know, that explanation was was so uh, infantile. It was like a you know, what I mean. So I, I think the the term graphic novel is certainly one that you know people try to use to give more respectability to what Will, and again, I don't even know if Will, you know, I think Will did coin the term sequential art, although I'm, I'm sure, you know, somebody could go through, uh, you know, uh, archives and, 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 uh, and, and libraries and find some, you know, use of that term before possibly. But, you know, I, 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 um, I think that there was, as I recall, the correspondence between Will and Jack was was cordial. I don't, uh, you know, it seemed that they both felt there was a lot to learn from each other. Yeah, I don't, I don't see that there was, you know, anything but just a mutual respect between two artists talking about the ideas, talking about the stage in their lives. Uh, Just for a brief, you know, history on Jack, he worked with uh, 
Jack Kirby. He worked with Stan Lee. He's most well-known as far as popular figures for uh, before doing the First Kingdom for working on characters like Bullet Man. Huh. Uh, as, he re- as he mentions it, Bullet Woman was okay to draw. Bullet Dog was his favorite. <laughs> um, and then, you know, some interesting ideas, many of which were uh, similar to other ideas that either came out before or after, and it was kind of about timing when, you know, and how some of his original ideas either did or didn't get picked up for works. Um, he, he seemed to have quite a grasp on the different styles as comics moved from, you know, the 40s, 50s into the 60s and 70s, whether he was working on, like, horror suspense or classic superhero or things like that. Um, but at, at some point there was uh, a break in his career where I didn't see as much work, and then later it seemed to resume a bit with the First Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And then the First Kingdom just became this long, sprawling, I think it's like an eight or nine volume, I can never get the number correct in my head, uh, collection. You know, and each book right. is hundreds of pages. Uh, and last he was working on was a, a sequel to that called Beyond the Beyond. Wow. And last contact with him was that he was completed that, and now it was on to something else. Incredible. And um, I was intrigued because, yeah, I was intrigued because he mentioned some questions that he wanted to answer in the book. And I asked, you know, when I touched base, like, hey, did you get a chance to answer those questions? He's like, well, that's what the next book's for. <laughs> oh, okay. So, you know, you, you, it's really interesting that I feel like, you know, in that way it seems like, like so many other artists and, and we can, you know, touch on the fact that, you know, your experience as a writer and artist, what that means for you, but you're always trying to tell the story, but just because you told it the best you could one time doesn't mean you're not always trying to tell it again better in a new way uh, to get closer to the ideas or, you know, tell it with new characters that can inform it more than you were able to the first time or having completed something go. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Okay, but next time, this is how I'm going to do it. Um, you know, I saw a great quote the other day that I feel bad that I can't remember who said it. Um, you know, I've been involved in, in, uh, in, in biography uh, most recently in, in, in my uh, writing career. And um, so I've been you know, reading a lot of uh, essays and websites and... and um, and writing by biographers, duh. And um, and, 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 and and so so consider the source. But the quote is something like, "There's no such thing as fiction or nonfiction. There's only memoir." You know, which 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 which, which means, you know, um, what, kind of what you were just saying that, you know, that as as humans and as uh, people who uh, do uh, thing do creative things. You know, we probably have one or two or three topics we're obsessed with, and then we find different ways to express those topics, whether whether we're aware of it or not. You know, um, Eisner always, I think, I, I, Eisner being Eisner, was aware uh, at least of, you know, of one topic that he was always coming back to, which was uh, survival, you know, human survival, um in the world, um, whether it be, you know, the spirit surviving uh, as a crime fighter or the, or the desperate characters, uh, you know, that it often, he often portrayed in his graphic novels, the people struggling to get out from 
um, the challenges of their lives or the people who were exploiting them or, um, you know, he did a story literally of, uh, about a guy um, having a dialogue with a cockroach who are famous for, you know, being the ones who will survive us all uh, <laughs> at the end of time. Mm-hmm. Or, or about, you know, and then Will became very interested in the topic of uh, Jewish survival, uh, especially at the end of, you know, in, in the second half of his career, you know, starting uh, with some of the stories in Contract and then going through the name of the game and and uh, uh, to the heart of the storm up until the plot at the end. So, I mean, it was, you know, I don't think he was didactic or or uh, overwhelming in, in, in his, you know, I think he always wanted to be an entertainer and an educator. Um, but but Will, Will, I think, was self-aware enough to realize that that, that that survival is sort of at the heart of what, you know, what we do every day. You know, I mean, the... You know the fact that we get up in the, you know you get up in the morning, and you think you're going to come back home at night, but you don't really. You know, that's, right. it's really we're all operating on uh, on a big leap of faith that uh, you know. But then you go, well, if I just stay in the house, though, uh, something could happen to me in the house too. So I, why not go out? You know, but I mean, I think that whole. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I think Will was was very aware of of of. Of that um, that kind of human issue of survival that is, you know, on the one hand seems very simplistic and yet is also very profound. I think so as well. I think he captured that idea that you know it, it can seem so simple when you're just going through it day to day, and then suddenly when there's a change, all that simplicity gets reevaluated, reexamined, and you're suddenly, you know, overwhelmed or confronted with the complexity of it all. And suddenly it becomes this much more complex idea of, you know, all of the things that could be working against you on a daily basis that you're navigating, whether it's the cars on the road, as a driver, as a pedestrian, as a, you know, a person in any place at any given moment, what what could happen um, and what could suddenly change all that. Oh, you know, but he had, by the way, the thing I'm doing on uh, on, on, uh, March 3rd at the Parsons is, I'll be in, I'll be having a discussion, or it'll be a presentation by and then a discussion with me with John Lind, who was the uh, designer and editor of Contract with God, um, a curator's collection, which uh, is, is, came out from Dark Horse, uh, I think about uh, in, in 2018. But it's Eisner uh, for Contract with God inked it all on overlays, so that. Um, you know, now some of it was with collectors, but basically all the pencil work and all the preparatory work exists for it, and then separately all the inking and lettering exists. So uh, John put together this incredible edition that we're going to be talking about. But 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 in um, so contract with God, if you, if you you know that really is literally Eisner 101, and then maybe the best of the spirit if you're if you want to read. Some some of the uh, the stuff from the 40s, you know. I mean, there's there's NDC at one point. DC Comics put out all the spirit stories in like 25 different volumes. But so there's a lot of Eisner out there. But uh, but the one of the things that impelled him to do Contract with God, which he didn't reveal till uh, shortly before he himself passed away, was that he had a uh, daughter uh, who passed away as a teenager. Um, 
1969 when she was around 16 uh, from leukemia. And, um, you know, the lead story, the title story in Contract with God is a, a disguised, you know, it's a metaphoric version of that. It's, a, it's about a uh, religious uh, Orthodox Jew who loses a daughter and, and sort of the, Christ, the life crisis it brings about for him. Uh, so I think Eisner, I think for him, survival was not abstract. You know, he'd, he'd served in the Army during World War II. Obviously, the, uh, the Holocaust was an incredible shock and, um, and, and traumatic uh, event for him as for the world and, you know, for Jews in particular. But having his daughter uh, die young, I think, really kind of shattered uh, his world in a way he didn't let on to anybody. You know, it really was not till years later that that uh, anybody outside his closest uh, circle of family and friends knew uh, that him writing and drawing about survival was not just an abstract thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an impressive thing when I think about not only the idea of trying to describe and portray survival, but then when you add in this personal layer about his own connection to what it means to press on when the impact is so close, so personal. And then at some point to find a way with your art to give that story a place to live on, because anyone who picks up that story from now on can, you know, give it a new life shared with a new person. But it, it also impresses me because when I think about how many people will eventually discover that story and mm-hmm. read it and how many who have already discovered it but now have this added knowledge to it, how much more that's going to lead them to go back and reread. Uh, for me, this sets up the fact that I mentioned at the beginning that Will Eisner actually made an impact on me because of a story uh, from the spirit, and it's the story of Gerhard Schnabel. Uh huh. That's a great story. Are you familiar with that one? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm quite familiar with Gerhard <laughs> Schnabel. Yeah. That 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 struck me. I was a young kid in my local library, which didn't have much of comics. There was only one comic book store in town. It was run by two brothers. It was called De Hoyos Comics. And I would bike down there like once a week, you know, surrender whatever amounts of my uh, <laughs> paper route money. I still had a paper route. This was a right. day when you could still have a paper route in a right. small town like that. And I remember that I could only spend so much money, but I still wanted to also understand how it was people knew so much about these different characters. And I'd only grown up with DC, so I didn't understand what so much was about Marvel that I needed to learn. So I came across a, a book about the history of comics, and it was this huge, thick thing in the library, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I remember I took a day in the summer and just went there for like an hour or two and just sat there reading it, and that was where I learned about Gerhard Schnabel. And they had reprinted the story in this book, and as I'm reading it over, my heart just broke at this idea of this this character and flying and how it seems so jarring when compared with the story of the spirit trying to track down these criminals. And right. it was a really amazing thing that I'd never seen done in comics before. And I've been reading for a few years, and I liked the stuff that I was reading because it was the only thing I knew, mm-hmm. and it was bright and cool. And 
Um, I got into comics in the early 90s, so I was exposed to a lot of the extreme, the Jim Lee, the, <laughs> right. you know, the, the big, like really in your face, everything's mm-hmm. over the top. Everybody has unbelievable muscles and perfect bodies. And, but then reading through this stuff uh, that, I, that I saw from Will Eisner, everything about it seemed much more simple and yet at the same time so much more human. There was a gravity that I always associated with the cover to a contract with God. It felt like the characters were wearing the world and the atmosphere around them on their bodies. And it it was powerful. I later remember hearing a Pearl Jam song called Given to Fly, maybe eight to ten years after I discovered that story. And immediately was like transported back to the library in front of that book, reading that story. And I don't even know if the two are connected. I thought in my, in my own head, I'm like, of uh-huh. course it's what it is. Of course it's what it is. But also this fact that any other time someone would say Will Eisner, I was back there reading this story, watching this guy fly, watching him experience something that no one else would know because of the tragic circumstances of the story. And I'm, I'm built into that culture where you don't give spoilers, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, so many hundreds of people, have, thousands of people have read this story. I'm yeah. not going to spoil it. It is a story, that, it is a story that came out in 1948, so I, I don't know if the spoiler alert is really, you know, I understand, right. though, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a desire in me that whoever comes across this recording, whoever comes across that story, it's not in some way tainted by what I'm trying to share about it, which is just this amazing feeling of, oh, man. I can't believe that was so, so powerful and doing so much with so little. It it seemed like, you know, I was exposed to all these over the top ways of telling stories and trying to get your attention. And in this one story, it just grabbed my attention and and held on. And I was just really moved by it. And that was my first exposure to, uh, to what Will Eisner could do and how my reverence for his work was just, cemented in that moment I was that, like, that, that's a great wow. exposure well you know without again without giving away the ending <clears throat> i mean the story <laughs> for people who haven't read it is about a guy who as a child discovers that he can fly and uh but his parents are embarrassed and ashamed over it and they and they tell him don't ever do that you know and sort of it's and then and then the story then moves to his his later life and his interaction with the spirit and 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 uh, criminals in, in 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 Central City, which was Eisner's very thinly veiled New York City. Right, and I'm in, intrigued also because I'm I'm reminded also um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the the animated shorts that they have with Pixar that have become really popular, almost as popular as the yeah, sure, itself. sure. And there's one streaming now on the Disney platform, and it's called Float. Uh huh. I don't know if I should And that it's one. a it's it's gained a lot of notoriety because it focuses on a Filipino family. Right. And it's a father and a son and the son floats. He like just sort of like hovers in the air and kind of dances around and the father at first is amazed by it, but then at one point he does it in public and it freaks him out. So he gives the kid a backpack and loads it up with rocks <laughs> and <laughs> to keep him grounded and then at one point they're at a park and the kid suddenly, like, you know, loses his backpack, and he's flying in the middle of the park, and all the parents are, are terrified, and the father freaks out. And in that moment, he sort of, you know, is, is frustrated and terrified for his son, and the interaction that follows is a really, you know, lovely experience about understanding and accepting, you know, the, the brilliance that we are. But uh, it, 
as I was watching that, again, I thought to myself, wait a minute. This is the story from Will Eisner about someone who could fly. Right. This is, you know, that, that connection was instantaneous, even though it's been, you know, some 25-odd years later. And, and how it, it, it points to this great concept, having an amazing ability, keeping it a secret, wanting to share it with the world, and then the, the, the heart sort of wrenching loss that can go with it. Well, you know, uh, I, it, I, I think it goes back to Eisner's own childhood. If you read uh, some of his more memoir-like uh, work, like To the Heart of the Storm or, or the... <clears throat> Or the one that's the uh, kind of uh, you know thinly fictionalized version of the Dreamer. That's uh, kind of history of the uh, of the comics uh, business. Uh, you know, you, you can see that for a for a kid uh, growing up in a tough uh, ghetto uh, situation, that on the one to be an artist, right? On the one hand, it's a it's a talent that people kind of admire and they like it if you can draw. You know, airplanes or rocket ships or 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 superheroes, but it kind of also has, I guess, the taint of being a little bit of, uh, you know, not macho enough, or or, the, or he's a sissy, or you can beat, you know, you can beat him up and steal his lunch money. So, it's, so I mean, I think, you know, Gerhard Schnabel, you know, is, is, you know, yeah, this is the, I mean. A, I'm sure I'm not the first person to think this, and but it is the first time I'm <laughs> thinking it. You know, I mean, I think it does tie into anything where you're special or different. Uh, you know, I mean, I've written a couple of books kind of about that. One called Superman on the Couch, uh, what what superheroes really tell us about ourselves and our society, and uh, and also disguised as Clark Kent, uh, Jews, comics, and the creation of the superhero, and they're both about how. You know, uh, you know, with different emphasis in each on how the idea of being, you know, often from an immigrant, an immigrant family, and having this these different skills, you know, and and um, you know, and just being different because your parents are not born here and they speak with a funny accent, uh, is is a mixed is a mixed bag, you know, and 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 I think maybe Schnabel was you know maybe will even commenting on what it was like for him to be different and have that you know that that drive and that and that skill to to draw and to tell stories you know so i so 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 uh, i think it comes from a uh, uh, you know from a profound place yeah and it also reminds me of a great conversation i heard recently between a couple of comic book writers i'm trying to think who the other was but i know one was tom king uh-huh. who's gotten a lot of notoriety recently. Right. Right. And he was Tom talking Thurfer. about his run on... Yeah, I, I've, I'm i a huge fan of his work. Uh, my I had to... My father has a bit of an illness, so I was home visiting him for free comic books. Sorry days. to hear that, yeah. And I... Yeah, thank you. But I had to task my wife with the uh, responsibility of getting me some free comics. Oh, sure. Because I wasn't going to be there. <laughs> and so she did, and, and to my delight, the staff was really helpful and when she said, what can I get him that's a surprise that he'll absolutely love, even though, he, you know, he, he wouldn't expect it. And they said, oh, you should get him the Mr. Miracle graphic novel. He'll really love that. And um, I've really, you know, I've actually had a chance to read it prior to that. She didn't know that. I just read it on my own. Right, right. And I was moved by something he'd mentioned in the interview. And I felt that when he mentioned it, I could see it in the work that I'd read from Mr. Miracle, about how he's like, look, there just comes a point where you just stop trying to be as creative as possible 
and you start drawing on the elements from your own life that you know are going to make the most sense or mm-hmm. that fit the best in this story. Right. And it feels like that's something that Will was able to identify at an early time in the, the birth of comics and able to use to great effect, not just in the story of Mr. Schnabel, but later uh, to more powerful effect in a contract with God, part of the storm. And throughout his career, there's probably numerous other examples that, that we could point to. And that was a way that he could, you know, use those parts of himself that needed to be addressed in some way and mm-hmm. use the stories as a way to address them, to work them out, to process them, or to simply say, hey, look, if you guys are just going to keep being in my way, I'm just going to use you in stories as much as, you know, as much as I have to that, or as much as it takes. For... Yeah, that sounds, that sounds right, you know. You know, there's a period for him. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. I mean, it's funny. I, I just sort of thinking back to what you're saying about Jack Hat sort of disappeared for a while. Well, a lot of people disappeared in the 50s when there was the whole anti-comics movement. And a lot of people, you know, if you've seen David Hadou's book, The Tencent Plague, <clears throat> You know, he has pages, you know, page after page in the back of the book with lists of people who, you know, left comics either willingly or or unwillingly in in the uh, early and mid fifties. And it's kind of sta- you know, I mean, you know, some people would leave just to go on to other things or to have families or or whatever. But a lot of, you know, I, 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 and will um, I think uh, very wisely, you know, I, I, I mean, will got out of mainstream comics really in 1940. I mean, he still, you know, did did some work and did the Blackhawk uh, work and other things, and Spirit was reprinted. But his main concern for the 40s and until up uh, to 1952 was the Spirit, uh, the Spirit section, which had other, you know, three other features as well as the Spirit every week. Um, but I think, uh, so I guess whatever Jack, but so he got, he ended up being out of the, uh, out of the heart of the storm, so to speak, and, and um, took him uh, more than 20 years to, you know, to come back to uh, comics that were not, you know, done on a, on a commission basis for uh, a client. Uh, so I imagine something similar might have happened with Jack Katz, who just found, you know, the, the industry you know, capsized. Uh, you know, you know, there was a lot of the, the you know the horror comics were the targets of people like Frederick Wortham and uh, and so on. But you know, even comics that <clears throat> that were benign, that were just the uh, you know Bigfoot uh, funny animal comics, got caught up in the same undertow uh, as mm-hmm. as the uh, over the top horror comics. Um, so I so so I think. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that ties into what you just. It sort of vaguely ties into what you just said, but I, but I, I think, uh, you know, yeah, I, you know, the Eisner's influence on, on everybody. I mean, he is one of those few people that, you know, even if they don't know it. I mean, that's the funny thing. You know, I think there are maybe generations who don't even know they were influenced by Eisner, but they were influenced by people influenced by Eisner. Just. You know, I think I think Jack Kirby is similar in that way. Um, you know, people you don't even, you know, if you're if you're, you know, if you're talking about the image the image uh, era, and I guess if people, if that was sort of your first, you know, you were fortunate and and uh, and also smart enough to pick up on the fact that even though you were, 
you know, into the image guys and, and whatever Marvel and DC were doing that, oh yeah, there had to be somebody before this, and here's this, hist- you know, you found a history book and, and you kept going back to the library to read it, you know, so... Um, you know, so that was one of the best discoveries I ever made. Which really, it, just finding that book and, and realizing that history. Which book was it? Um, my brain's not going to recall okay. it right now. In fact, as I was trying to, I, I was open to tab or two, like where can I find this history <laughs> of comics book? And uh, and, it, and the title is lost to me at the moment. Yeah. But it was really uh, comprehensive because it it showed a lot of the underground comics. It, it had some great reprints of some really interesting for me at the time, out there stories. Um, you know, uh, uh, there was one story about a world of comic book characters that were no longer needed and how they'd all been cast to this kind of like phantom zone existence and huh. wandering around looking for ways to sort of just exist without having any relevance. And, I'd love and to sort of, uh, yeah, I'm going to come across yeah. it. And when I do, and I'll do a little research, I'll find that. But, it, you know, it, it covered, you know, Zippo. It, it covered a, a lot of just different ideas about what comics could and couldn't be. It touched on Shlomo. You know, it showed oh, all these different elements. Huh. And, yeah, I'd really yeah, be curious to know. Really, for, for my yeah, ge- from, will, yeah, yeah, please. For my generation, the, the that was, it was Jules Cipher's Great Comic Book Heroes. That book, yeah. that book really, you know, I've been reading comics, you know, for years. Um, that came out in 65. And uh, and I knew there I knew there had been comics before, but there was no real way to see them. You know, I mean, you could see the Batman and Superman annuals of reprint stuff. But Eisner, who had worked, uh, I'm sorry, but Pfeiffer, who had worked for Eisner, and one of the reasons he even did that book was to kind of put Eisner back in people's consciousness. Uh, printed a spirit story, and I'd never heard of the spirit, and that was really <laughs> mind blowing. You know, along with all the other stuff. You ever read that book, Pfeiffer's book? I know of the title. I should get my hands on it's great. it. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great book. You, you can, you know, you should try to find, you know, uh, the original version or, or a reprint because it has the comics in it. But there is a version that Fantagraphics put out that's just the text, which is great to read, too. But obviously having the comics with it would be uh, a bonus. But it, it, that was really, um, <clears throat> I mean, maybe the Lupoffs or maybe some other people had done books, but that really... Uh, there was that, and then the Steranko history of comics. Those two volumes, that, that, those are real eye openers. You know, that was that was. Okay. You know, even even though I mean, it's funny to think about, because um, right now I am much older than when Will Eisner first started being the grand old man of comics. He was like 52. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, of course, all these guys started when they were 16, 17. So. By the time you got to be 52, you would have had like a 40-year career already. You know, I don't know if I did the math right, but I mean, you know, it was. Uh, yeah. I'm not a math major, never was. Yeah, never yeah. To be, no. You know, need help with my taxes on a regular basis. Well, sure. You know, yeah. Danny, I, <laughs> I love the fact that you brought up, you know, when you were first exposed to this, you know, uh, book by Jules that then introduced the spirit to you. Because it allows me to sort of talk about your history a little bit. You said you'd been com- reading comics for a while up until that time. When did you get into comics? Because you have a history that I would love to move the conversation into a bit. We could probably spend two more hours talking about what Will's done for us and how right. he's influenced you out. But there's also the person who's holding the title of chair. And that's the reason <laughs> you know I wanted to get in touch with you was, one, because you've also already had an experience within comics that <laughs> – 
Well, you know, Danny, the first thing I'm going to say, um, and I'll let you lead up to that, but I actually have the first issue of Dark Hark Comics. Um, it, it was a really fun book for me, but knowing that I was getting to sit down and talk with you and that I would get a chance to hear not only your history working in comics, but how you first got exposed to, you know, when did you start reading comics? How long had you been reading before you discovered the spirit? And then tell me about your own time uh, working in comics. Okay, so in 25 words or less, um, I was I'm a, I'm a, I'm, a uh, I'm one of those dreaded baby boomer uh, guys. Um, so I was born in the, the 50s, and uh, I started reading comics probably when I was about five. Uh, you know, people always ask me what was your first comic, and I, you know. It was so. It, I was so young. I think it was a Popeye comic because I was a fan of the Popeye cartoons that were shown on TV a lot uh, mm -hmm. when I was a kid. So I think it was. I think my mom uh, must have bought me some Popeye comics, and then I, and then my cousin Steve. Shortly thereafter, I know gave me some like old Superboy and Adventure comics. Um, so I was, but I was certainly reading them by five, six, seven. You know, it was a, uh, you know, I was an early reader in general. I think partly because of comics, or largely because of comics, because uh, as you know, this may be familiar to some of your, to you or to some of people listening. You know, when you read comics, you really end up with a much larger vocabulary than the average kid, and and reading skills that that uh, are are often uh, you know put you at the top of of your class just. Um, you know, thanks, thanks to comics, really. Um, so, <laughs> I so I was reading, I was, you know, I was reading the DC. I was a big superhero guy. I definitely early on glommed onto that fantasy. If, maybe it was because of the old, the you know, George Reeves Superman TV show, or I don't know what. There was something about those costume characters that really grabbed me. And I was, so I was reading all that they're reading. Well, a lot of DC, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash. Uh, some of the tangential stuff like Rip Hunter, Time Master, and um, you know, you know, but, but largely, uh, you know, I, I read a lot, a lot of comics, but superheroes are my favorites. And then, um, you know, I had two or three friends who were also into comics in a big way. Everybody read Archie or something for a year or two, but uh, as far as you know, people who really, you know, people who haunted the the candy store, which is you know the ma where they sold magazines and comics when I was a kid in New York. So people who haunted the candy store, waiting for the proprietor to cut the wire on the bundle of comics, you know, so mm -hmm. that we could get them first. Because um, mm -hmm. you know, because they they'd get them in the morning or the night before, and it wasn't a big priority to them. So we kind of go in and make them cut the the metal wire that was holding the package of comics, and so. A friend of mine said there's this new thing called the Fantastic Four that, uh, you know, that's really pretty cool. Um, so I found Fantastic Four issue number four, the one where the Submariner returns. That was my first Marvel comic. Mm. And wow. uh, and and um, I read pretty uh, in a pretty dedicated way till I was a teenager. And uh, you know, I think Marvel was changing at that point. Kirby had left. Uh, Stan, I think, was in many ways not focusing as much as he had been on the comics. Um, you know, the, the, the size of the paper the artists were using changed. A lot of things changed at the same time as I was becoming an adolescent. 
So I kind of, I'd say in the early 70s, I dropped them. I got more into the underground comics and the stuff like Harvey Picar. But probably in 1965 was when Great Comic Book Heroes came out, and that's when I discovered the spirit and Eisner. And then was, was, was fascinated when Harvey Comics put out a bunch of reprints, and then when uh, Warren uh, Publishing and then Kitchen Sink uh, put out various uh, spirit reprints. And, 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 so I, and then I started working at Marvel, in uh, in 1977, working for Stanley's brother Larry Lieber in the British department, which was a long. How did that happen? Uh, well, I came. I graduated. I, I I went to college. I I studied filmmaking, but sort of in a in a kind of film as fine art program, as opposed to film as commercial blockbuster program. Uh, it was a very interesting. I studied with uh, people, including a guy named Ken Jacobs, who was Art Spiegelman's mentor. Uh, oh. at Binghamton University. Um, uh, so I had always maintained some of an interest in comics, and I came back home after I graduated college, and for me, home was Manhattan. I'm, uh, as, you, as, as, as your listeners can no doubt tell, I'm a suave, sophisticated, urbane fellow, um, and, uh, yes, and uh, also very provincial. Cause I, yeah, that's my joke, is that uh, you know, born, I've spent my entire life pretty much... Uh, Except for you know when I went away to college and did some traveling uh, on the island of Manhattan, which makes me the most provincial person you'll ever meet in your life, you know. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know it's like what cross the water? I don't know. Um, so um, uh, so I came back home and I thought, uh, oh, it might be interesting to work at you know Marvel Comics. It was interesting. I, I mean, I, I didn't say it might be interesting to work in comics. I specifically thought, well, it might be fun to work at Marvel Comics, and I knew somebody who got me in the door for an informational tour, and while I was there, I ran into somebody that I went to high school with, and eventually, you know, so eventually, wow. uh, I ended up uh, through those, uh, you know, combination of connections and luck, and I mean, I couldn't say the connections, as I said, it was a guy I hadn't seen since high school, and... Um, but I ended up... So, so Larry had just been working... Uh, at a company called Atlas Seaboard, which is a whole other story. Uh, but he had come back and, and, and uh, was in charge of putting out uh, some new material, mostly a character called Captain Britain, but most of what we put out was reprints in black and white of, of American comics divided into chapters, because there, there was a market in, that, in Britain for that, things like 2000 AD and Bino, if, if you know any of those names. So we were yeah, we were, one we were, of the guys had podcast with us from England, and he loved to tell us the stories about all the different ways marketing right. know, practices were sort of applied when it came to shipping them overseas. Right, exactly. So this was, I mean, I think the real hardcore fans wanted the actual color American comics, but for just an average kid who liked comics and liked the Marvel characters, these reprint editions were cheap and... Uh, and they came out, you know, on a, on a, on a bi-weekly basis or weekly basis. And, and Star Wars was very big. That was when Star Wars was starting, and we actually they were using the material in England at a faster pace than they were in, in America. Um, so anyway, so I was the, yeah. I was the assistant on that, and then that evolved into a job uh, in the mainstream editorial department as a assistant to shared assistant to a guy named Saul Brodsky and to Jim Shooter, and then eventually uh, I ended up working with Louise Simonson in the X-Men office as her assistant, then I became the editor of Spider-Man, 
um, a couple of different periods in the 80s and the 90s. I did a ton of freelance writing, including, as you say, as you mentioned, uh, the Dark Horse comic, of which I wrote every issue. I wrote a lot of Spider-Man. And so I was, I'm probably best known in 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 uh, the mainstream comic world as the uh, group editor of Spider-Man. And so I, you know, I was running the Spider-Man line when it had like uh, 17 or 18 Spider-Man-related titles coming out every month. Um, mm. and, um, and then since then, uh, I've written books about comics. I teach about comics. I packaged and edited a magazine called Right Now with a W for uh, Tomorrow's mm-hmm. Publishing, which was kind of Writer's Digest for comics. Uh, and uh, and I guess the thing that I've done most recently that I wanted uh, to you know to talk to a little was about Will Eisner's friend Stan Lee. You know, Will and Will and Stan. Um, that's a, they didn't go to high school together, but they you know they were of that basically uh, similar generation. Will I think was maybe five years older than Stan, and um, and I think they knew and admired each other. At one point, Stan tried to get Will to be the editor of Marvel when he wanted to step down. Um, yeah. Or, or really, or, or to be I think to be more the publisher. You know, not not so much. I think Stan wanted to to just to do stuff uh, more involved with movies and TV, and I think. He thought it would be in good hands, but Will was not a superhero guy by any means, and and he also was not uh, was not a fan of the work for hire situation. You know, Will believed that people should own uh, the rights to their work, so that didn't work out. But anyway, so I so my I, I knew and worked both at Marvel and at other companies with Stan for forty plus years. So I'm. Um, you know, I wasn't Stan's closest friend, but I was a colleague that he liked and knew and trusted. So I, I have written a biography of Stan Lee called The Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee that came out in November uh, from uh, St. Martin's Press, uh, Macmillan, and, uh, and, and, it's, uh, and it's available everywhere, you know, at comic shops, at bookstores, at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and, you know, but, and it's been very well-reviewed. Uh, even people who... You know, if uh, you know, obviously there was friction between Stan and uh, some of his artists, especially uh, Kirby and Ditko, and disagreement over who was fairly credited and fairly rewarded. So even people who may not love Stan have told me they thought I did a, a, a fair and equitable job in presenting uh, the different parts of the story. So it's it's a book. I you know, it's got uh, three hundred. Uh, footnotes, because I figure when you're writing about Stan, you got to be, you know, <laughs> careful where you cite everything. And you know, so it's uh, so it, it, if you're interested in Stan, Marvel, history of comics, history of pop culture in America, the '60s. Um, but it really talks about Stan's life from his birth in 1922. I go through a lot of his earlier career that people may not know much or anything about. Uh, a lot of the interesting things Stan did that had nothing to do with Marvel. Um, and, and his relationships with his creators and his family. And so it's a real, you know, it's an actual prose biography that uh, uh, you might want to check out. Yeah, I would love to. In fact, if you wouldn't mind teasing us with just, uh, you know, you, you meet people and at some point they do something that's quintessentially them or maybe even completely out of character and you think to yourself, I'm going to write a book one day. And it can be, you know, it can be the embarrassing, it can be the exemplary. Is there uh, one of those moments that as you were writing the book, you were thinking to yourself, you know, I finally get to tell this story about Stan that either uh, 
nobody knows, everybody knows, or I've just been wanting to tell? Well, it's a thing that happened. You know, there was a period in the um, uh, fairly recently, in from around 2013 to 2017, uh, I was working for the Wizard World convention chain, and um, yeah, you know, yeah. there. You know, if, I mean, everybody knows what a comic convention is. Wizard uh, was a chain. They they had like, and they still do. They still are around. They you know have about maybe 15 conventions a year, and they seem to specialize. They have Chicago and Philly, but otherwise kind of smaller cities like Tulsa and Nashville, where there's. Uh, and Stan was involved with them, and I and for a couple of years I was his regular moderator, and. Oh. Um, you know, because I knew him, and uh, and he knew me, and yeah. uh, so um, at one, I think it was in Sacramento, uh, a few years before he passed away, he had uh, he was scheduled to be there on Saturday and do a panel. You know, he would do usually he would do like a paid thing. You know, where you if you wanted to be in a small group and get stuff signed, you would pay some fee. But he also did a panel that was just free and open to anybody who would who was at the convention. Um, so that was where I was going to be his moderator, and he and he was late by a day, and um, he uh, I think the uh, I think the convention sent a plane from Sacramento to L.A. to get him, and and uh, he had um, he had had a bad reaction to a flu shot, and um, so was kind of knocked out, and oh. I could see even you know so he came a day late, and then the president of the Wizard Company gets up. And he says, look, um, he says, you guys know Stan was supposed to be here yesterday, but he had that reaction to the flu shot, so he's a real trooper, and he didn't want to disappoint you guys. But he's only going to do 20 minutes. He's not going to do the full 45-minute panel, just 20 minutes. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure you understand, um, and it's great that he's here at all. So here's Stan and Danny, and we came up, and there's applause. And, you know, and Stan, uh, and I could see before Stan... Uh, you know, while he was backstage, I could see he was not feeling well, and he had to hold tightly onto the banister to get up the three steps, the four steps of the stage. Mm. And they were sitting there and chatting, and it was going, you know, perfectly fine. And everybody, you know, people are flashing me signs, you know, uh, 15 minutes to go, 10 minutes to go, five minutes to go, that's it, stop it. So I, I say to Stan, um, uh, you know, John explained to everybody that you're not feeling well, and it's so great you, you, you came anyway because you want to disappoint everybody. But, you know, as he explained, we're only doing 20 minutes. So is there anything you want to say to the folks before uh, we go off stage? And Stan looks at me and he says, Is God talking to you? Did he say we have to stop? I feel great. Let's keep going. So... Everybody oh, backstage is like flashing me signs that I have no idea what they mean. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I uh, went, okay, let's keep. And so, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, and then we went about another 10 minutes, I think, and then finally we were able to get him off stage. But I've seen that happen, you know, not just with, with, with many people who either elderly or ill or both. I remember it happened with, I did an event with Harvey Picar once. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think it happens, of course, classically in show business, where, where you know, it looks like somebody can barely stand up, but you get them on stage, especially if they're natural performers like Stan was, and it really energizes them. You know, but it was very funny. So that that might be that might be a, that, that's certainly a defining 
story of who Stan was and 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 uh, what made him tick. I think, and you know, just you know, just very funny that uh, you know, what are you talking about? I feel great. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, Danny, that's a perfect story uh, to introduce people who might have been thinking to themselves, okay, so what can I read when it comes to the amazing story of Stan Lee and a marvelous life that I, I haven't heard already? If you haven't heard that story, which I never had, well, you can look forward to it and many others in the book that you just had published and printed and released back in November. And, 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 and there's more than a few. And if, you, if, if, if you've in any way, shape, or form enjoyed hearing me blather on, on this show, I've also, I, I also <laughs> I did the audio book. So the audio book awesome. is available. Oh, wow. So, uh, which actually, That's, again, I, I love it when the author reads their own book. Yeah, it was Something fun. I, 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 I was glad I had the chance to do it. Although, I have to say, when you read your own book, you do discover every single typo or repeat or word you repeated <laughs> more than you should have, or word that you should have used instead, or every misplaced comma. But, but it was, but it was fun, and I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think that sense of it being fun uh, comes comes through on the. Audiobook. So if you're an audiobook person and and you've made it this far through this podcast, then then uh, you might uh, <laughs> you, you might want to check that out too. And there's a large print book coming out, a uh, large print version coming out. So we got everything covered. A lot of foreign languages. I think Italian and Slavic and uh, you know Spanish and uh, and and even a version in, in in England. I guess they must have changed color to color and elevated a lift or something. But uh, anyway, yeah. So theater has that e at the end now. Huh? Um, right. <laughs> I said theater. Theater has that e at the end now. And exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. Um, so uh, yeah, well, that's it, a great introduction. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it, 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 people seem to like the book. As I said, Scott, it was a it was a Times of London Book of the Year and a sci-fi channel, a sci-fi uh, website uh, pick, and it was on the NPR uh, homepage. So it's got it's gotten a lot of. Uh, it, it's it it it's gotten good uh, feedback from, you know. I I tried to make the book so it had enough inside baseball that if you are a comics fan, there's stuff that you might not have known and points of view you might not have seen, but not so inside that it would alienate people who were not super immersed in it. So I try. I think I think I think I touched those bases, and uh, I say the depth is there if you're interested in it. But I try to structure it really like a novel, you know, like a like a like a story that, you know, and luckily Stan's Stan's life lent itself to that. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, now, Danny, because people might want to follow up with you, uh, they didn't hear the title right. They have other questions. They they want to contact you. I mean, you've got your website, DannyFingeroff.com. Right. Um, they can they can find information about you. You know, there's a great clip about the book. How else can they reach out to you on social media? This is basically my chance right. to let you tell everyone where they can find you. And I know you're going to be at some con soon as well. Right. So uh, tell I'm, us everywhere you're going to be and how we can reach you. Well, Danny at DannyFingeroth.com. And uh, in case you didn't know how to spell Fingeroth, it's F-I-N-G-E-R-O-T-H. Um, I'm on I'm on uh, Facebook, uh, Danny Fingeroth. I'm at Danny Fingeroth on Twitter, um, and um, yeah, I'm going to be doing a bunch of cons. I guess the big news is that I'm going to be uh, one of the special guests at the San Diego Comic Con in July. Um, awesome. I'm also going to be at uh, the Heroes Con in Charlotte in June. I will be at the East Coast Comic Con in New Jersey in May. 
I will be at the old school big little little giant I'm forgetting the name of one day convention in New Hampshire in April uh, and uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting some other things I got um, I'll be doing this Will Eisner Week thing in New York at Parsons uh, with the, uh, the great John Lind on the 3rd and um, boy oh boy I must be forgetting some other appearances but I'm you know, I'm still in the process of plugging the book and promoting the book. So if anybody does want me to come to uh, speak at their uh, venue about Will Eisner, Stan Lee, uh, the history of comics, history of Jews in comics, how to write comics, how to edit comics, any of that stuff, um, please uh, feel free to contact me. I love speaking to crowds. I'm, I'm told I'm a halfway decent speaker, and, I, and just in case I'm not, I pretty much always bring a, a PowerPoint uh, slideshow so uh, even if I'm boring, the uh, the slides will be exciting. So that's uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, DannyFingeroth.com, as I say, is uh, is probably the best place to find me. Well, Danny, I know I've enjoyed every minute of our conversation. I wish I'd booked out a few more hours so we could keep talking. Because well, I, I'm available. I'm available for more. I'm available for a follow up. <laughs> So that's great. Uh, I, I love the chance to catch up with you again, talk more. Uh, when you were talking about the Spider-Man books, I was reminded when I saw Deadly Foes about how many friends I knew freaked out when that book was coming out, <laughs> all of their excitement about what it was going to see to see these guys take Spidey down. And it was, it was a, you know, there's so much in there that my introduction to Dark Hawk, there, there's a lot of fun stuff I would love to follow up with you on. And also just some of the other concepts you brought up, you know, uh, Jewish history, Jewish history and comics, um, and a, a lot of other great topics that I think we could have more great conversations. I know okay. that when you're close to me, I'm going to come see you wherever you appear. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Oh, great. Um, and I just want to say thank you again, man. Well, um, thank you. It was a, it was I had a no pleasure. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that this is what I would get involved with when I touch bases with Will uh, Eisner, uh, talking about Will Eisner Week. And when they introduced me to you, it was just an amazing blessing. And this conversation has just been a really great gift. Oh, so thank you. It's been a pleasure. Again, oh, this has been great. So, uh, so hopefully to be continued. Okay. So, yeah. uh, we'll go ahead and wrap things up for that. Thanks to everyone who was with us today and listening. You've got all those great ways to reach out to Danny. I always leave information at the end for how to reach out to me. Stay tuned for that. I'm going to let Danny go because he's also an extremely busy guy, and I've gotten a great deal of time from him, to which I'm extremely thankful. And don't forget Will Eisner Week. Will Will Eisner Week. (laughs) Celebrate Will. Without question, Will Eisner Week, starting on March 1st, running through March 7th, or throughout the rest of the year, if you want to make it longer, whatever your definition of a week is. I'm not here to stop or influence you. But that's when I know it officially starts when I'll make sure that this is posted, ready to share, and You've got both of us to reach out to for any follow-up questions. Can't wait to uh, have another conversation with Danny Finger. Thanks, Thank so much. Thank you. And that is going to bring our episode to a close. I'd like to thank Danny for a great conversation and for his willingness to, on relatively short notice, make himself available for a great conversation and for allowing us to share our ideas about who Will Eisner is who he was what he did for both of us and what his work continues to do in the world around us as we mentioned this is our kickoff for will eisner week which runs from march 1st 
through March 7th. If you go to willeisner.com, you can come across numerous events that might be occurring either in your area or close to you, or you might be able to find more cyber events like this, where no matter where you are, all you have to do is dial in, connect, and find a way to participate in the way that best fits for who you are, where you are, and how you wish to engage with the wonderful experience that is Will Eisner Week. I'm really thankful to Danny for taking the time to sit down with me today, to have a great conversation, to share so many insights that he had, not only about Will Eisner, but about his time as a comic book writer, as a writer of many books, and to talk to him about his upcoming book, which was just released in November, A Marvelous Life, a story of Stan Lee and Danny's experiences with him and the stories that go with that. I hope you liked the teaser story he had for us. And if you have any other questions for Danny, remember he gave you all of that great information that you can use to reach out to him, and I'll include that in the liner notes of this episode. As we look ahead, my next conversation that I'm looking forward to sharing with you is with Miss Christina Duvarney. Christina began her own clothing line known as Beautiful Disaster, and you can see my conversation with her very soon right here on Storytelling with Seth. Speaking of that, if you liked everything you heard today, if you want to hear more, share it with others, all you have to do is go to the podcast platform you're listening on now or to another podcast platform you enjoy. It can be Stitcher, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, Overcast, and so many others. And all you have to do is look for Storytelling with Seth and then subscribe. And if you want me to know what you think or what I can do to improve, send me a score, send me a note, send me a comment, send me a question. You can always reach out to me via email at sethsingleton at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram as seththewriter, on Twitter as one more singleton, on Facebook as Seth Singleton Storyteller, and on my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller. Please don't hesitate to reach out with any of your thoughts, questions, comments, and or more. And if you really enjoyed this episode, share it with others, tag me in a post, and let Danny and I know what you thought about this addition to the wonderful week that is Will Eisner Week. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to sharing another story with you next time. Until then, goodbye for now.